Welcome to Brave Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us today. We're in a series on Sundays going through the Gospel of Mark, but we also want to encourage you, if you live in the area, go to brave.church slash homechurch and check out our home churches that are gathering together around these teachings throughout the week. We believe the kind of church Jesus came to start is more than a crowd. It's friends on a mission living life together. Another great way to connect further is through social media, where there is content designed to inspire and inform you. Here's this week's talk. Today, we are concluding a series that we've been in for the last four weeks called Kingdom Values. But I want to begin by asking a question uh, for those of you who are here that are not followers of Jesus, or if you're not sure that you can trust the Bible, I want to ask a question, and that is, why is Mark's gospel so important? Why does this passage, in fact, why does the Bible carry so much weight in Christian churches? Have you ever wondered that? You know, every time we get together, we're looking at scripture. Clearly, it's really important to us. Uh, I read recently uh, this week in Andy Stanley's new book, Irresistible. He's a pastor on the East Coast, and he wrote this book, and I love what he says. Check this out. He says, if somebody predicts their own death and resurrection and pulls it off, we should do whatever that person says. I love that. It's so clear. At Brave, we follow Jesus. And because scripture mattered to Jesus, it matters to us. And because he trusted it, we can trust it. Let's read that again. If somebody predicts their own death and resurrection and pulls it off, we should do whatever that person says. We aren't going to go into all of the proof of the resurrection, but I want you to know that is what anchors our faith. It's not a house of cards with 66 decks, and if one thing in the Bible's disproven, the whole thing falls apart. No, our, our, our house of cards is one card, and it's the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there is a lot of proof and a lot of history. We don't have time to go into all of that today, but we're actually starting a class in a month. This is kind of the sneak peek, okay? It's called Starting Point. And it's an incredible look at six weeks of going through some of these questions, looking at the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's an apologetics course. And so if you're new to faith or you just want to go back and say, I feel like I missed some things in my foundation, this is going to be a great class for you to check out. And so we'll have more info for that next week. But for today, I want you to know that I believe the word of God is authoritative in our lives because Jesus was who he said he was. Jesus is who he says he is. And so at the end of our gathering today, we're going to have a baptism. And what do we, why do we do baptism? We can cheer right now. We're already so excited, so ramped up because Jesus himself was baptized. And he tells us that that's the next step. If you have decided to follow him, to make a public declaration in front of your friends, your family, your community and say, my life is now marked by this. This is my commitment. And so we'll go more into that later on. Uh, But this book that we've been reading, The Gospel of Mark, we've been in it for almost a year now, and we've been learning so much. But I want to remind you and refresh you a little bit about the guy who wrote it, okay? So his name's Mark, and he was a person like you and I, and his gospel tells his side of the story, okay? He's looking at, through his lens, his perspective, things that he witnessed, Now, Mark left everything to follow Jesus, and one day, he would even give his life for the cause of Christ. And one of the things that I love about Mark is that he was all about the outsiders. 
For some of you, maybe like me, you grew up going to church or you grew up kind of in this culture, in this tradition. Maybe for others not, that's okay. But I want you to imagine with me, if you were, like Mark, he grew up in the Jewish tradition. He grew up in that religion, in that, in that system. And so here he is. He's had an experience with Jesus. He's following Jesus. He's seen the death and resurrection. And now he's writing his side of the story. But he's thinking about people that didn't grow up like he did or don't know the things that he knows. He's thinking about the Gentile world, everyone else, those outside these walls. And we, we know this from a few things that we can point to. I just want to share these with you because it's so amazing. The first is genealogy. He skips the genealogy. It's one of the ways that some of the disciples would go to Jewish synagogues and try to convert people is they would look at the genealogy of Jesus because there was prophecy and predictions that Jesus or the Messiah would come from a certain bloodline. And so they'd look at this bloodline and it's a long list of names that traces all the way back to show that Jesus came from the right place, the right bloodline. This was very effective in the synagogues, but it wasn't effective with people outside who didn't care about the long list of names. And so Mark knew that. He knew that that would be just as fascinating to the Romans and the Gentile world as it would be to you and I. So he's like, boring, let's skip that. Okay, he doesn't put that in his gospel. And so that's one of the things. The second thing is that he focuses on a Roman view of time. Jews and Romans mark time differently. For the Jew, the day began at dawn and it ended at sundown. This had spiritual significance for them because they believed it was a way that they honored God and recognized that even though the sun went down and they were sleeping, God was still working. But the Romans, they divided time differently, and we've actually adopted the Roman method. We divide time into 12-hour intervals, midnight and noon. At midnight, a day begins, and at noon, the day is halfway over, unless you're in college, in which case the day starts at noon. You guys remember those days? Wish we could go back, don't we? No. We don't. Um, Lastly, he interprets Hebrew and Aramaic terms for the reader. So he's aware that there's people that that grew up with a different language, grew up with some different concepts, and they're not going to understand if I talk to them the way that I would talk to my friends or the people that I grew up with. And so he, he uses different terms. He explains things. He uses different illustrations. This is one of the reasons why at Brave, we don't use Christianese phrases, Christian culture has a way of creating its own subculture that, that, that's really confusing if you're an outsider. And so Mark's like, hey, I don't, wanna, I don't want outsiders to feel like it's harder for them to find Jesus. And so I'll give you a few examples. And these aren't bad words. We just choose to use different words because, again, we don't want to create unnecessary barriers for helping people find Jesus. And so one example is offering. Offering. We don't use that word in culture, offering. We don't, as a way of giving, right? But giving to God is something that we do, we do talk about. We talk about giving to God, giving. It's just so much easier because it doesn't require an explanation. Another example is fellowship. Fellowship, uh, you know, maybe you love that word and that's cool, but we've just decided to talk about that differently. We talk about friends on a mission, We talk about spiritual community. We talk about friends following Jesus together because it requires no explanation. Another one is the lost. If you're here today and you haven't decided yet what you believe, we want you to know that this is not a church that will ever casually refer to you as lost or lost sheep, right? That's so weird. When someone says lost, 
It implies, man, that poor, confused person, they must be ignorant. Like, what happened to them? They, they just haven't figured things out yet because they're lost. Jesus used lost as a metaphor. As far as we know, he wasn't sitting at dinner with his disciples out in the courtyard, pointing to the table next to him, saying, those guys are lost. So at Brave, we recognize that there are some who follow Jesus and some who do not. And maybe you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus. And I hope that we can help you find Jesus. For others of you who are already following Jesus, I hope that you can put roots down and that your faith can grow. It's not God's heart to make anyone feel like an outsider. So we try to keep it really simple around here. Some people misrepresent how spiritual something is or how deep it is by the style or the terms that are being used. But according to scripture, depth is only measured one way, and it's love. How loving are our actions? That's deep. Mark was an incredible man with a huge heart for helping people find and follow Jesus. He was great because he served people in this way. But at this point in our story, Mark was actually more of an outsider. He's following this rabbi all around town, okay? And he actually hasn't fully bought in yet. He doesn't fully know what it even means to buy into these teachings and to buy into this person that he's following. He wasn't really sure if he could. So at this point, Mark and the other disciples, they're all in the same boat. Jesus is their new boss, but he's unlike any other boss that they've ever had. And so we're going to look at Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. And if you didn't get notes and you, and you want those, raise your hand. The ushers will get those to you. The notes actually have questions on the back that we discuss throughout the week in home church. So you're going to want notes. But let's begin reading together in verse 32. It says, they were on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and he told them, what was going to happen to him? We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So, okay, let's stop there for a second. So the disciples are following Jesus They've, they've taken the show on the road. He's doing miracles. Crowds are gathering. He's teaching. It's really awesome. And now he says they're going to Jerusalem. So for them, they're like, we're going to the main stage. This is the big time, right? We're going to Jerusalem. This is the special place. This is going to be amazing. Now everyone that's important is going to see who Jesus is. But then Jesus pulls them aside. And he says, hey, guys, I got to tell you something. When we get there, I'm going to be condemned by the religious leaders. They're not going to like what I have to say. And then they're going to hand me over to the Gentiles, and I'm going to be spit on, flogged, mocked, and killed. But after that, I'm going to come back to life. Like, wow, Jesus just predicted his death and his resurrection. And so how do the disciples respond to this? How do they respond to what Jesus is telling them? Let's take a look in verse 35. It says, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. So what are these guys up to? Has anyone ever gotten a text from a friend that just says, like, hey, can you do me a favor? And you're like, what's the favor? Right? Like, I, I get kind of frustrated by those, unless it's my mom, in which case I'll do whatever she asks. 
but it's like, what, what's the favor, right? And so they're asking Jesus this, and I think that we learn this when we're kids because we think, hey, if I can get mom and dad to say yes, even though they don't know what it is, then my odds have improved, right? And so the disciples, they're trying this, and so how does Jesus respond to them? He says, what do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory, So they wanted seats at his right and his left in his glory. Now, most scholars agree that in his glory is a phrase meaning in his kingdom. So they're asking for important positions in Jesus's kingdom. Okay, they want a title. They want power. And it's interesting in our culture because we don't really use the word power or we don't think of it per se, as a motivator in our careers when we're climbing a ladder. Like typically, you know, we point to, you know, a desire for more wealth or more income. It's more about money. But actually, when you think about it, power is probably more of a motivator than we realize. You know, we love the idea of having a great title, of being the CEO or being the person in charge, being the boss. It feels good to have authority, to be able to tell people what you want them to do, when you want them to do it, to change the plan. And it's all up to you. What they're asking for is no small thing. They wanted to be Jesus's right and left-hand guys when all of the other kingdoms of the world would bow down to Jesus's new kingdom. They wanted to be seen right next to him, up at the top. In Mark's gospel, it says that Jesus, they asked Jesus directly. And in Matthew's gospel, it actually says they put their mom up to it. Wow. In Luke's gospel, he just leaves the whole embarrassing story out. He's like, that wasn't one of our better days. We're just going to leave that one out. So what is Jesus going to say to him? Let's keep reading. He says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and he said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercised authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to, ser- to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The first thing in your notes, our kingdom value, is that greatness is serving others. Today, I want to talk to you about the way of the great, because God is building Brave Church to be a great church according to his value system. And learning this value system is foundational. This passage, it gives us incredible insight to what it takes to be great in God's kingdom. But like the disciples, this can be hard for us to grasp, to really align our lives with this value because it's not in our essence. It's not how we grow up thinking when we think about greatness. I remember when I was in kindergarten and first grade, my favorite thing to do was to play dodgeball. Like at break, at recess, when the bell rang, we ran outside and we grabbed the dodgeballs. We fought over who the captains were. And then as you know, kindergartners and first graders were lining up and the team captains are picking. And they're picking based on who's going to help them win, right? Who are the best players? And so at a very young age, we're learning, man, some of us are greater than others. Some of us have more ability than others. Some of us are better at playing dodgeball. And whether you're the captain sizing people up or you're standing there in line just hoping to get picked, 
This is how we see greatness. But Jesus says, that's not how it works in my kingdom. I didn't come to win against other earthly kingdoms. I came to serve them. And that means I'm gonna do for all the other kingdoms what they cannot do for themselves. Giving my life as a sacrifice for many. Greatness in God's kingdom is serving. So today I wanna talk about the way of the great because it's a completely different way of seeing it. It might even feel unnatural at times. So let me paint a picture. Number one in your notes, the way of the great asks, how can I help? The way of the great asks, how can I help? Um, James and John would be great one day, but on this day, they weren't great at all. They hadn't yet internalized Jesus's kingdom value of serving. Jesus had told them what would soon happen to him when they went up to Jerusalem. And a great response would have been, wow, Jesus, can I help? Like, do you have to die? Is there a way that we can make this more comfortable? (laughs) Like, is there any way around this? Like, they would have empathized with Jesus if they really heard what he was saying. But instead, they were blinded by the lights. They were blinded by what would come in Jerusalem. They were blinded by power. Greatness asks, how can I help? What do you think of when you think of greatness? I think of my younger brother, Isaac. He's special needs. He just turned 29 last week. And he, uh, a couple years ago, he said, I want to know what my life mission is. And we said, that's great, Isaac. You should, yeah, you should know what your life mission is. And so he went through this process, and he discovered that his life mission is helping others. And so every week on Tuesday morning, he comes around to our offices, and he says, how can I help you? And if you need a bottle of water, Isaac's on it. If you need some coffee, Isaac will make it. If we need him to move chairs, Isaac will move the chairs or set up. If we need someone to run media for the kids on Super Thursdays, Isaac's doing it. What do you think of when you think of greatness? Most of us, if we're honest, we don't think of a young special needs man getting people water or serving coffee. Marcy and I have some friends that lead a home church. Their names are Joe and Emily. And we realized about a year ago that we weren't going to be able to lead a home church. And we were really bummed because uh, we love home church, but we were moving in with my parents to save money. And it's not a forever thing, uh, but it's a for now thing, right? And it's a way that they could help us to get ahead and to save. And so we realized we weren't going to, between that and her school and all this stuff, we weren't going to be able to host a home church anymore. And so we asked a few because we saw the need, the growing need. Like at Brave, we're growing, but we don't want to be a crowd. We want to be a community. And so home church is where that happens. And so we saw the need, and so we asked a few people if they would start new ones. And one of them was Joe and Emily. And we knew that Joe and Emily would be great at facilitating a home church because of the way they served us and the way we saw them serving others. So can I brag about them for a minute? I'd hear things like, hey, we can't make it on Friday or we can't make it on Saturday because we're watching so-and-so's kids. Like, they're, they're young, they're married, they don't have kids, and they're giving up Friday nights and Saturdays to watch other people's kids. Or we're, gonna, we're helping so-and-so move on Saturday. Or when my wife was going through a lot of morning sickness, we found a basket on our porch with things that they thought would help make her feel better. One of them was Kit Kats, and I don't really know if that helps morning sickness, but <laughs> she loved them. Or buying people lunch or dinner. I heard something this week on a podcast. Sociologists have actually found, this is really interesting, that buying other people's lunch makes us feel closer to them. But what's also interesting, and and this is where the problem is, is that they don't feel closer to you. See, growing up, I watched my parents buy so many people lunch whenever they could. I don't know if it's a pastor thing or they're just super generous. But it's interesting that you actually have to let people serve you 
And you have to let people buy you lunch so that the relationship grows deeper, so that it goes both ways. See, sometimes it's easier to serve others than it is to let them serve you. For example, when someone has less than you, it's hard to let them when you know that you have more. But check this out. There's a story in the Bible about a poor widow, and she only has two pennies, and that's what she gives. And it's contrasted to this wealthy person who, gives, who has so much more to give. But guess which giving God celebrated? The widow. Now, let me ask you something. Did God need two pennies? See, often we think about giving as if like, it's, it's only about what needs to be done with it or what's going to be done with it. And we hyperanalyze, hey, how are things being spent? We don't have that problem here at Brave. We're just transparent with our finances. But I think sometimes we miss the point that giving isn't just about what you have or what's going to be done with it. It's about your heart. It's about what's being done in your heart. See, when you give to your church, it's your church. When you give to your friends, they become family. Jesus said, the world will know us by our love for one another. When you meet up in home church or you're grabbing coffee, grabbing drinks, grabbing a meal, ask one another, how can I help you? If you hear about a need, that's your moment. That's your opportunity to, to, to step up, even if they don't ask. Last, uh, a couple weeks ago, I was supposed to be teaching, but we had an emergency. My wife's dad has, uh, his liver is failing, and he was in the hospital. We were really scared because we thought that his, his uh, you know, other organs were starting to be attacked, and they ended up removing six pounds of fluid, and fortunately, it was pneumonia. It wasn't his, you know, getting that much worse, but his liver is still failing. And so my dad shared this at the beginning of a talk, and it was incredible. Someone came forward and said, I'd love to be a living donor. I'd love to help if I can. And then last week, somebody else said the same thing, two people so far. Isn't that incredible? Now, the, the plan A is still to get a full transplant because it's twice as likely to succeed. But we're just blown away by the love that is in this community. I got to tell you one more story. One more, can I tell you one more story? This is incredible. So we're, you know, saving. We're living with my parents. Things are a little tight. My wife's in her last semester of school. And so we're paying for her school. And just last week, some friends came up and said, hey, God put it on our heart. We want to pay for half of her school this semester. I share this with you because I want you to know the kind of community that God is building. Serving others is not just good intentions. It's loving action. It's number two, the way of the great is forged by humility. It's forged by humility. What if I were to tell you that we've got a really important serving opportunity coming up? There's something that we really need help with, but it's going to take someone who's great, someone that has a well-worn path of walking the way of the great. And it's, so it's really important. And you're thinking maybe like, oh, this is my opportunity. I haven't gotten involved yet. I've been waiting to serve. I've been waiting to do something. Maybe this is it. And then what if I were to tell you that we need someone to come by on Mondays after work and clean toilets? How many people do you think would respond? Like, don't raise your hands, but how many of you even clean your own toilets? <laughs> right? Greatness is serving others. And questions like that, when they come up in life, by the way, we don't actually need someone to. Someone asked me after the last service, like, do, do you need me to come clean the toilets? I'm like, no, it's okay. But questions like this that come up in our lives, they're a great heart test. Because how long it takes us to be willing to do something for others that we really don't want to do is a great indicator of what value system we're living by. Some of us are not nearly as happy or fulfilled as we could be 
because our values and our actions aren't in alignment. If we value serving, but we aren't doing it, we're missing out. Greatness is serving others. I can be the worst at this. I'm going to be honest. I was studying this week, and I was in my office, and my wife came in, and she needed help with something on her computer. And I don't know what the deal is, but there's always like one spouse that has to be good at the computer stuff, right? And somehow that's me, and I wish it wasn't. But she comes in, she needs me to like fix something on Dropbox or something or figure something out. And I was like, babe, I'm doing something really important right now. I can't. So she walks out. And then I realized I'm writing a talk on serving. (laughs) And I just told her that I can't serve you right now. So the moral of the story, if you're doing something important, lock your office door. (laughs) Sometimes the problems are mindset, right? When it comes to serving, we usually start by thinking, well, what am I good at, right? What can, I, what can I do? What have I got to work with? That's not a bad question, right? Today is step one of Fast Track. Next week is step two, and it's called discovering your purpose. We want to help people figure out what the gifts are that God's given them to use to serve others. What have I been masterfully crafted to do? There's something that all of us have been, have been given to use for God. And so usually we ask this question, like, what's my best serve? What's my, you know, all of these things, but... In the kingdom of God, there's something that matters way more than what we're good at. Gifting, personality, outward appearance, presentation, it has nothing to do with the maturity of a person's heart. At Brave, everything that we do flows out of this heart to serve because our Lord came to serve, not to be served. A servant's heart is forged by humility. It's those, it's those asks that you don't really want to do that maybe if you're honest, they feel a little beneath you. I was talking to a friend last week. Uh, his name's Chris. And not last week, sorry, a year ago. I was thinking about it last week. And I was just thinking back to this conversation we had at lunch. He told me, hey, I'm ready to get involved. I want to serve. I want to join Team Brave. And, and I, I want to use my gifts. Is there anything really significant that I can do to help? And he's, he's very successful already at a young age and really sharp. And so I just shared the first thing that popped into my head, the first idea. And I told him, hey, we have a new kids director, and he's going to need some help. We've got an elementary class that needs more teachers. Would you be willing to teach in the elementary? And immediately he said, yeah. So he's been teaching up there for over a year. And I thought about it this week, and you know, I don't know if that's what he thought I was going to say. I don't know if that's the first thing, the first thing that, that he thought that I would suggest he do. But what's amazing about this is that though a prideful person would have responded differently, he now has credibility. He's been faithful. And now God can trust him with other things. That's what greatness looks like. It's asking the question, how can I help with the humility to help wherever the help is needed versus how can I help because there's something that I really want to do. We have gifts. God created us to use them for him. And so some of you, you're you're so talented, I'm blown away. But hear this. God cares more about developing our character than what we can do. Sometimes God doesn't put us where we want to be because he wants to see how faithful we'll be to serve others when we're not where we want to be. And so if this is a season like that for you, embrace it. Serve. Take joy in serving. Know that God sees what you're doing. And remember that Our role model is a guy who washed his disciples' stinky, smelly feet. (laughs) Lastly, number three, the way of the great is marked by suffering. Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Jesus said, can you drink the cup I drink 
or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. They expected Jesus to say something about this role that they wanted to play. They expected him to say something about what their position would be in the kingdom. And instead, Jesus talks about a cup and a baptism. The cup is seen in a number of Old Testament passages symbolizing suffering and punishment, usually at God's hand. Jesus is trying to tell them that what's coming is gonna be really hard, but it's God's mission. This was not what James and John were thinking about. They thought they were going to live like kings in this new kingdom. Later on, after they went through the pain of losing Jesus and they saw his death and then they saw his resurrection, I imagine that they thought back to some of these moments. I imagine that they thought back even to some of the prophecies that they would have grown up hearing and knowing about that, that maybe even seemed weird at the time. They're like, what is this all about? There's one in Isaiah 53.10. It says, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. How could God let his son be crushed by his enemies? Verse six, we see the answer. It says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus is referring to himself as the son of man. And there's this metaphor, this picture of a suffering servant willing to take on the pain that he did not deserve. The son of man would bear all the sin, the debt of the world. He would take it all upon himself. The result of sin is the wrath of God and he took on all of it. This is the cup of the son of man. See, we will never suffer as Jesus suffered, but we will suffer and we will know pain. And when we do, in Jesus' name, we share in his suffering. We can identify with a savior who came to serve and was marked by suffering. Jesus also talked about baptism. You know, baptism is a celebration. It's a beautiful thing. I'm so excited to see people raised to life this morning in the waters of baptism. But there's also some sorrow and grief mixed in. When they're plunged to the depths, when they go beneath the water, they're symbolizing the death of Christ. And that's why there's so much joy. That's why we're gonna be shouting when they come up. See, the disciples, all they've known about Jesus' ministry so far is parties, eating and drinking, celebrating, miracles, so much joy. But what they're about to find out when they get to Jerusalem is that there's also a cost to discipleship, that there's also a price, that there's also some things that are gonna need to be done in Jesus's name. Almost all of the disciples died a martyr's death. That's how much they believed in Jesus. And that's where their heart went. That's what their heart developed into. That's the kind of character that was forged. See, Jesus, look what Jesus says to them. He says, you will drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. Jesus had faith in them. He knew they weren't there yet. He knew that if if suffering came right then and there, man, they would have probably scattered. But he knew that they'd eventually learn the way of the great. They'd give their lives to serve others. Greatness is serving others even when the cost is great. Would you pray with me?
God, I pray for every single person here, Lord, those who are following Jesus, those who are hearing the gospel, maybe for the first time, and even those who have maybe left and are returning. And God, I pray that, that this week, as we reflect on your word and as we reflect, that we would ask you the question, God, what are you asking of me? What does love require of me? God, I pray for those who are being baptized this morning, that this would be a day that they never forget for the rest of their lives, that when they come up out of that water, they would feel changed. God, we thank you that you were willing to take on our sin, that you were willing to face this wrath, and that we can now be set free. We can share in your mission. We can share in your suffering, even when it is hard, even when it is painful, that you can identify with us. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's our hope that you will let this message go deep within your soul and allow Jesus to do the work that only He can do. We also want to encourage you to partner with us here at Brave. Go to brave.church and become a regular giver and be part of how God is using this message to help people find and follow Jesus.